Good morning. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. I will actually spend the majority of our time in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, but we'll briefly start in Philippians 3 and, and use it as a, a jumping off point. Uh, we've been looking at this, this same section of, of Philippians 3 for, for a few weeks now. Uh, in verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul describes the triple gain of following Christ. In verse 9, he writes, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Uh, then in verse 10, he continues that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then in verse 11, he adds that by any means possible, I may obtain resurrection from the dead. And so Paul here is addressing the past, present, and future implications of salvation. In the past, he was justified in Christ. In the present, he was being sanctified by Christ. In the future, he would be glorified by Christ. Now, at first glance, when we read what Paul writes there in verse 11, he seems unsure about his eternal state. The ESV again reads that by any means possible, I may obtain resurrection from the dead. Other translations use in order that or, or somehow. But we should realize Paul was not uncertain about the reality of his future resurrection. He was uncertain about the timing and circumstances of his future resurrection. As a matter of fact, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15, he was actually very confident about his future resurrection because he understood his future resurrection was rooted in Christ's past resurrection. So let's move over to 1 Corinthians 15. I told you we're going to be in Philippians 3 for a very brief time. And when you get to it, you'll notice that chapter 15 has 58 verses. And my original plan was to deal with all 58 verses. But once I started outlining, I quickly realized that was a bad idea. I was actually reminded of a story of a, a Puritan minister who preached a Sunday morning sermon with 17 points. Uh, towards the end, he actually introduced the, the final point with, and 17thly. And when the service was ending, he, he could sense that he had lost most of the congregation with all those sermon points. And so he told them, please come back next Sunday. I know that I went hard this morning. I know that I covered a lot of ground this morning. But I promise you, if you come back next week, I promise you my sermon will be pointless. There's your dad joke for the week. All right, so let's, let's start with the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Now, I would remind you, brothers, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. So first, Christ's resurrection is of first importance. In many ways, the, the first century church in Corinth was very similar to the 21st century church 
in the United States. The Corinthians were blessed with an abundance of gifts, talents, and resources, but they are also cursed with several internal problems. And because of their numerous dilemmas inside the church, a delegation of church members put together a long list of questions for Paul. And in response, the apostle wrote a highly structured letter where he spoke to most of their specific issues. And notice I said most. Because in chapter 11, he, he writes, when I come, I'll give further instruction. So he couldn't cover everything in this letter. In the given space, he couldn't solve all their problems, but he does cover a lot of ground. And since we're kind of just dipping into this letter this morning, I want to I give you a bird's eye summary of these first 14 chapters. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul addresses divisions. The Corinthians were, were split, they were fractured into several different factions. They were divided over ethnicity, it was Jew versus Gentile. They were divided over social rank, it was wise versus foolish, powerful versus weak, rich versus poor. They were divided over their preferred teacher. Some said, I follow Paul. Others said, I follow Apollos or I follow Peter. And in the midst of their disunity, Paul charged them to pursue unity. He wrote in, in chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. In the world, there, there was Jew and, and Gentile. Wise and foolish, powerful and weak, rich and poor. But in the church, there were only sinners in need of grace. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Chapters 5 and 6, Paul addresses immorality. Corinthians had members bringing lawsuits against one another, they had members who were excusing a variety of sexual sins. As a matter of fact, the entirety of chapter 5 is devoted to addressing a situation where a young man in the church had started a relationship with his stepmother. And for their part, the Corinthians were, were boasting in their tolerance. They were proud of their acceptance. They propped up their inclusivity, but Paul reminded them, Scripture doesn't gloss over immorality. He reminded them, in Christ, you've been granted the freedom from sin, not the freedom to sin. Chapter 7, Paul addresses singleness in marriage. In Ecclesiastes, the wise King Solomon wrote, there's nothing new under the sun. They were confused then, we're confused now. And then in 8 through 10, Paul addresses a hot-button question. They asked him, can we eat food which has previously been sacrificed to idols? After pagan worshippers sacrificed an animal in their temple, they would throw it on the grill, and they were inviting the Corinthians to come through and get a plate. And so they asked Paul, can we eat with them? 
Is it okay for us to eat the meat of an animal which was previously sacrificed to a false god? And Paul essentially said, yes, you can eat. Steak is steak. Rib is rib. In Christ, you're free to eat anything in any place with anyone, but keep in mind how your decisions can impact others. So make sure you're not causing your brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Be willing to give up your rights for the sake of the gospel. In chapter 11, Paul addresses gender wars and classism. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. And finally, in chapters 12 through 14, Paul addresses spiritual gifts, which is another heated battle inside the church in Corinth. And and even in the midst of that, we should mention that while tackling a contentious fight within the church, Paul writes the love chapter for the church. And so in, in chapters 1 through 14, Paul addresses several issues of varying importance. But in chapter 15, he addresses one issue of first importance. And so as a church, we we must recognize many things are important. But only one thing is of first importance. And Paul says that is the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. I delivered it to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. The central theme of Scripture is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament looks forward to it. All of the New Testament looks back to it. Paul says, This is the one superior truth. This is the one central doctrine. This is the one overarching reality that should shape our identity, motivate our work, and affect every part of our lives. Christ died for our sins. And so when we talk about keeping the main thing the main thing, this is what we mean. The heart of the gospel message is God sending His Son to bear His wrath to save his children. And after establishing the significance of the resurrection, Paul covers the evidence for the resurrection. Picking back up in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Second, Christ's resurrection is a historical reality. The foundation of our hope is in verses 3 and 4. Christ died, he was buried, 
and he was raised on the third day, and all of it happened in accordance with the scriptures. All of it happened as part of God's sovereign plan. All of it happened because of Christ's love for us. This isn't a dispensable truth. This is the essential truth. And in these verses, Paul provides two compelling pieces of evidence, an empty tomb and several hundred eyewitnesses who saw Christ at different times and in different places. And one of those appearances involved more than 500 witnesses. And both of these pieces of evidence together build a strong case. As one prominent theologian explains, if we only had an empty tomb but no eyewitnesses, critics would conclude the body was stolen. And if there were only eyewitnesses but no empty tomb, they would have concluded that the eyewitnesses were deluded. But the two together make for convincing evidence. Yet despite the convincing proof of the resurrection, most of the world rejects the resurrection. They reject it for many reasons, which we can't possibly cover in the allotted time. But we should be familiar with a few primary arguments. For one, skeptic may say the physical resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen. It was just a legend which grew over time. Jesus was a wise teacher, a revolutionary leader, who rubbed the religious elites the wrong way, and eventually they killed him. But after his death, his, his followers continued sharing his teaching, and over time, as stories were passed down from generation to generation, they started exaggerating. They added these connections to the Old Testament as part of his legacy. They added miracles to his legacy. They added, And then eventually they added a resurrection to his legacy. And, and we understand that logic, right? If you think about our, our founding fathers and the stories that we tell and retell about them at the end of the 18th century, they defeated an insurmountable opponent and created a new nation. All of the freedoms which we enjoy can be traced back to their bravery, but still in some cases over 200, the last 200 plus years, they've become these larger than life figures in our history. Their legends have grown. But here's the problem with taking this view of Christ. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in 53 AD, which was only 20 years after Christ's death. And also in, in verses 3 and 4, when he writes Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, some scholars believe he's quoting a common hymn that was sung in the early church. As a matter of fact, Gerd Ludemann, who's a very liberal New Testament scholar known for an anti-resurrection stance, concedes that the tradition of the formula, Christ died, was buried, and was raised, and appeared to his disciples, dates within two years after the crucifixion. In two years is not enough time 
for a mythical tale this large to take shape. Another common argument against the resurrection is maybe they were hallucinating. Maybe in the midst of their grief and, and despair, their minds made it up. Well, typically, hundreds of different people don't have the same delusion. If you adhere to this point, you're saying that over 500 men saw the same vision of Christ at the same time, and several more saw the same vision of Christ at several different times. And also, even if hundreds of of men and, and women were participating in a shared trip to fantasy land, why didn't the enemies of Jesus produce his body? Why at no point did they produce his body? Think about in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John are, are preaching the, the risen Christ in the temple courts. Why didn't the Sanhedrin produce the body and debunk them in Acts chapter 4? Why didn't they say, hey, you've made some interesting points, but you're wrong. Jesus isn't alive. He's dead, and here's his body. Let's consider one more argument. Some say, Maybe the disciples made it up. Maybe they lied about it. But the problem is, when you spread a lie, which you know is a lie, you're generally gaining something from the lie. For example, a small child may lie to avoid punishment from his mother. A friend may lie to protect your feelings. A businessman may lie to protect his profits. A politician may lie to secure your vote. But let me ask you, what did the disciples gain? As they preached Christ in the face of persecution and hostility and suffering in first century Rome, what did they gain? The truth is, they didn't gain anything. Actually, they lost everything. They didn't become rich. They became poor. They didn't become powerful. They became oppressed. They didn't become influential. They became enemies of the state. And still, to the point of death, they kept preaching Christ. And they kept preaching Christ not because they fabricated or hallucinated him. They saw him with their eyes. They touched him with their hands. They heard him with their ears. That's why Peter and John, as they stood before the Sanhedrin, said, we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Now what's interesting about how Paul starts chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the overwhelming majority of the church in Corinth already believed in the past resurrection of Christ. 
They didn't need Paul to, to prove that to them. They already believed in that. But they were struggling with believing in the future resurrection of Christ's followers. So in the next section, Paul begins unpacking their doubts. Skip down to verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So third, Christ's resurrection fulfilled God's redemptive plan. The last Easter, Senator Raphael Warnock found himself at the center of an increasingly common 21st century firestorm. It was an all-too-familiar story arc. Politician sends tweet. Constituents become furious about tweet. Politician deletes tweet. Staff member takes blame for tweet. Well, on April 4th, 2021, Warnock, or someone on his staff, wrote this. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Now, we could camp out here and chase rabbits and offer rebuttals, and, and we should certainly take issue with the, the basic premise of his statement because Easter doesn't transcend the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also, we can help others, we can support others, we can serve others, but we can't save ourselves through a commitment to helping others alone. Remember Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead, but God. But my goal in, in highlighting this old deleted tweet from Raphael Warnock is not throwing him under the bus or stirring the partisan pot or arguing against flawed theology. My goal is reminding you that he's wrong about the resurrection, but he's not alone in being wrong about the resurrection. In fact, many in our nation, our state, and even our county share the same view of the cross where they aren't captivated by it, they aren't motivated by it, they aren't devoted to it. 
On Easter morning, they may write a Facebook post about it, but for the most part, they're completely numb to it. In the Bible Belt, we're surrounded by people who are living out a modern version of Pascal's wager. Do you remember Pascal's wager? The 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal argued, it's better to be a Christian than a non-Christian based on the odds. He said, if, if you live your life as a Christian on earth and later you find out that Christianity is not true, then you won't lose much because you lived a, a nice, good, decent life. But on the other hand, if you live your life as a non-Christian in this world, and you discover Christianity is indeed true, then you'll lose everything and you'll spend all of eternity in hell. So in, in Pascal's view, the logical choice was, was following Christ because the potential losses for not following Christ were much more significant. And in the same way, many who claim Christ are living out a similar game of chance through their words and works they're saying I'm not totally sure about Christ I don't know if I want to plant my flag here I don't know if he really rose from the dead and I can't speak with any certainty about the afterlife but just in case just in case I'll attend church couple times a month just in case I'll volunteer for a couple service opportunities just in case I'll put a couple dollars in the offering plate and you know if Christ didn't really overcome the grave then at least I spent my life serving others Paul would have strongly disagreed with Blaise Pascal. He says, point blank, if Christ has not been raised, then we are wasting our time. He says, if Christ has not been raised, we are misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins. If Christ has not been raised, then we are eternally separated from our loved ones who have passed away. He even adds in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Simply put, if Jesus is still in the tomb, then every obedience step, Every sacrificial act, every compelling word given on his behalf is utterly and completely worthless. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a secondary Christian truth. It is a the foundational Christian truth. As Tim Keller puts it, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not 
He rose from the dead. Go down to verse 35. Paul writes, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body that he has chosen for each kind of seed has its own body. So Paul anticipates two questions from the leader, by this by, from the reader. By this point, he hopes that, that you affirm the past resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of his followers, but he assumes that you still have questions about the latter. Primarily, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Now notice how he, he prefaces his answer for the first question in verse 36. He says, you foolish person. You're, you're asking without thinking. You wonder, how will the dead be raised? And yet, you see God complete incredible feats every single day. And if you would consider his creation for a moment, you wouldn't be overwhelmed by this idea of him raising people from the dead. And Paul solidifies his argument with an illustration from nature, starting in verse 36. Again, he writes, What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or, or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. In other words, a seed is made out of the same stuff as a fully grown plant. But the fully grown plant is much more complex and intricate. One small seed can become a massive tree or a beautiful flower or delicious fruit. And the same is true of us. Our current earthly bodies are seeds and our future heavenly bodies will be the fully grown plants. There, there's a body for down here, and there's a body for up there. And then Paul moves to the second question and starts describing what these bodies will look like. Verse 40 says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and the other glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for the stars for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Again, the, the second question that Paul anticipates is, what will our resurrected bodies be like? And in verses 42 through 44, he gives, first, he gives four answers. First, 
He says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. You have a limited shelf life. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. You don't know when you will take your final breath, but but God knows, and and in his economy, you have a use-by-this-date sticker on your forehead. And I don't want to bum you out, but your body will continue to break down until it eventually fails you. Because your earthly body is perishable, but your heavenly body will be imperishable. Second, he says it's sown in dishonor, it'll be raised in, in glory. And that Greek word for dishonor is often used to describe someone who has lost their, their citizenship. In the simplest terms, once you become a corpse, you lose your rights. A corpse can't utilize free speech. A corpse can't own property. A corpse can't vote in, a, in an election. And also there's nothing honorable about a decaying body. But what's dishonored on earth will be glorified in heaven. And third, he says it's sown in weakness and it'll be raised in power. You know, Lacey and I were were talking about the other day that when we turned 30, our bodies started to break down. And I know some of y'all are thinking, like, give me a break. Just give me a break with that. But listen, there are mornings when I wake up and my body screams at me. And I'm thinking to myself, why is my back hurt? Oh yeah, I moved those two boxes to the garage. Or why is my shoulder aching? Oh, I tossed a football around for 45 seconds yesterday. It's depressing. And it's only getting worse. What's sown in weakness will be raised in power. And finally he says, it is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. This last one's a little bit confusing because typically when we use the word spiritual, we're talking about the opposite of the physical or material, but that's not what Paul means here. Because both the earthly body and the heavenly body are physical bodies, but the spirit will significantly enhance the heavenly body so that it is far superior to the earthly body. When Christ returns, if you've placed your trust in him, your your future is not becoming a spirit and floating through the sky. Your future is not becoming an angel and playing a harp while sitting on a cloud. Your future is becoming a renewed, upgraded, perfected version of you enjoying the fullness of God.
Christ has done, which you could never achieve, so you can enjoy what you could never earn. Because he lives, we can echo Paul's words at the end of chapter 15 where he says, Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this future day that waits for those of us who are in Christ. Father, I, I first want to pray for those under the sound of my voice who've maybe never placed their trust in Christ, who, who have questions about the resurrection, who have, have doubts, who have concerns. Lord, I, I pray that you would, would, would minister to them through the preaching of your word and that they would... Uh, that they would trust in Christ today. And Father, for those who are in Christ already, I pray that you would give us a, a renewed vision of this future reality. Lord, as we walk through life day by day, we, we are aware of death we are aware that this life as as James says in his epistle is, is is like a vapor or a puff of smoke we know that intellectually but we don't we don't really live it out practically we know that our, our time will, will one day come but we still live as though we have immortality we just go about our business and and, and, and live our lives. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would, you would ground us in this future that's coming. As Paul says in, in Colossians, you know, that you would help us to set our mind on the things that are above. And as we strive together to run the race and finish the race well, Lord, that you would keep our eyes on the finish line. In good times and bad, that you would remind us and help us to see this picture of what's coming. So, Father, we thank you for your Son. We are grateful for the first resurrection. And we look forward to the next. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.